Hey guys, and welcome back once more to the Unknown Friends Book Review Podcast. This week you've tuned into episode 23 of season 3, the penultimate episode of the year. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wan Productions, and I'm so glad that you've joined me today for our discussion of Paralandra by C.S. Lewis. This is the second volume in his Space Trilogy, which we began talking about in our last episode. So if you haven't yet heard that episode, I do recommend you go back and listen to it first, because today we're going to dive right into book two without any other preliminaries. So in book one, Out of the Silent Planet, our hero, Dr. Ransom, traveled to Mars. And in book two, he travels to Venus. Or in the old solar language that he learned to speak while on Mars, those two planets are called Malacandra and Paralandra, respectively. And so after his surprising adventure of being taken to Malacandra and meeting the planet's friendly inhabitants, he has been back on Earth for a couple of years and has only told a very few friends about his interplanetary experience. But it has changed him deeply for the better. He is now more in tune to the spiritual realities of the world, or of the universe, I should say. He he believes in angels, or Eldila, in a new way, and he better understands Earth's place in the universe as a world that has fallen, unlike other worlds, um, but a world that is being redeemed by God's son, whose name is Maleldil in Old Solar. And now that he is so much more aware of the deeper realities of the world and the spiritual warfare that is actually going on all around him, Ransom has become a ready and willing servant on the good side, God's side of the cosmic spiritual war. And when book two opens, we learn that Ransom has been commissioned, so to speak, to travel to the planet Venus or Paralandra for some important but unknown reason. So he voyages through space and lands on what at first seems like an ocean planet. He is drifting and swimming, trying to find land for a while, and finally ends up discovering floating islands. Um, Islands that don't actually have roots in the planet's core, or even a, a totally solid shape, but they drift, and their shape Um, kind of rises and falls with the rising and falling of the ocean underneath. So it takes time for Ransom to learn how to even walk on these shifting islands, but he does. And on the islands, he finds uh, incredible fruits and some fascinating animals. But for a while, he still isn't finding any human life or even alien life of um, a rational kind. But finally, he discovers one human, a woman who has the authority and grace of a queen, but the innocence and naivete of a child. And Dr. Ransom learns that this strange lady is searching for a man she calls the king. And before long, Ransom realizes that these two are the only human inhabitants of this whole planet. And in fact, they are somewhat like Adam and Eve from Earth. 
but they're a new Adam and Eve on a younger world than ours. Well, just by talking with the lady, Ransom already learns a great deal about what innocence and truth are, and though he hopes to help her find the king so that he can talk with him as well, they aren't able to find the king before a newcomer of a very different type arrives. One day, Ransom sees a spaceship land in the distance, and a man comes out of the ship whom Ransom recognizes as none other than Dr. Weston, the more or less mad scientist who was the villain of book one. And of course, Ransom is dismayed. Paralandra is a beautiful and good world, um, so far untarnished by any evil, and Ransom is sure that Weston has come to destroy or at least defile Paralandra. So Ransom is bound and determined to prevent this if he can. When Ransom and Weston actually meet, however, Ransom is surprised at first to hear Weston, who used to be a staunch materialist, now talking about spirits and spirituality, um, though not in a way that Ransom really agrees with. And then a truly shocking thing happens. It becomes clear that the spirits Weston has come to know are not good ones, but evil ones. And in Ransom's presence, Weston actually invites the spirits into himself, uh, which is not an invitation which has to be repeated. Ransom watches as Weston literally becomes devil-possessed. And it's truly horrifying. Um, not at all in, you know, like a horror film kind of way. Um, C.S. Lewis has no interest in just making the reader's blood curdle. But instead, he wants to reveal deeper, uh, less obvious realities about evil. Um, the truth that evil at its core is narcissistic and petty. And yes, cruel and repulsive and strong in one sense, but also empty and even ridiculous at times. So yes, it's horrifying when a human gives themselves over to evil as Weston has done. Uh, it's horrifyingly tragic for them. But at the same time, a good man like Ransom is by no means powerless against an evil man like Weston. Anyway, it soon becomes evident that both Ransom and Weston were sent to Paralandra as representatives, one on the good side and one on the evil side of this war. And the fate of the planet Venus rests between the two of them. The Lord and Lady of Venus, of course, have the central choice in the matter, but Ransom and Weston are the ambassadors, you could say, for the two sides that the king and queen of Paralandra must choose between. As of yet, this new Adam and Eve are still unfallen, and they have fellowship with Maleldil, and all is still well on Venus. But Weston, inhabited by the forces of evil, begins doing his very best to tempt them away from goodness, while Ransom, for his part, does everything he can to foil Weston's efforts. So it's almost a reenactment of the Garden of Eden, with, of course, some fundamental differences. But this is a monumental struggle 
that Ransom engages in, and the stakes are about as high as they could possibly be. So what follows in the middle of the book is this conflict between Weston and Ransom. It's, for a time, sort of a contest of rhetoric and logic. Weston is being very friendly and complimentary to the Queen of Paralandra and tries to use persuasion to subtly draw her away from Melaldil. And Ransom, on the other hand, continually counters Weston's arguments, trying to expose the lies that are interwoven with the apparent truths Weston uses to bolster his arguments. And Ransom is doing good work and holding off the enemy's advance for the most part. But unfortunately, over time, he thinks he can see Weston making progress in tiny increments. He hasn't corrupted the lady yet, but he has put ideas in her head that could eventually turn her from Melaldil. And eventually, it gets to the point that Ransom does not know what else to do. The whole situation seems so unfair. I mean, he's he's just a guy, right? Up against a man literally possessed by the devil. So how is Ransom supposed to win this fight? And why was he sent, of all people? Well, eventually, a new idea occurs to him. Uh, a different way that perhaps he could fight Weston. And who knows, maybe even he could win. Uh, maybe even remove Weston from ever again being a threat to the planet Venus and its people. But Ransom's idea seems crazy at first, and even seems unspiritual, which makes him second-guess himself. But in the end, he becomes convinced that it's the only way, so he decides to try it. And a pretty epic fight ensues, spiritual and physical, which I won't spoil by trying to describe. So, on that cliffhanger, <laughs> that is um, all I'll say for now about the storyline of Paralandra. There are very few characters, much like in Book 1, Out of the Silent Planet. Uh, Ransom, of course, is the hero, and Weston, the villain. And beyond that, it's pretty much just the Queen of Paralandra as the other character, um, besides a few brief appearances from a couple of side characters. So in a lot of ways, it's a very simple, straightforward story with just one clear mission for Ransom, protect Paralandra. But where it gets complex and actually kind of mind-blowing is in the thematic content. The theology, really, that Lewis explores in this book. He gets into some pretty deep topics in the conversations he records among Ransom and Weston and the Queen of Venus. Um, he explores some of the workings of temptation and means for defeating temptation, um, free will and providence, the nature of God, the nature of man, and the nature of the relationship between God and man, um, what God wants from us and why. So Lewis covers a lot of territory, and his insights are profound. I first read this book back when I was in high school, and it actually formed some of my views about God and the meaning of life. Now, of course, in a review, there is no way to convey the depth or breadth of 
insight that you'll find in Paralandra. You you truly just have to experience the story for yourself. But I want to try, at least, to share a glimpse into the themes that are so thought-provoking. I think one of the most important things Lewis shares with us in Paralandra is the true nature of goodness. Goodness both in the sense of what is right or righteous, and also in the sense of what is uh, delightful, uh, satisfying, agreeable, beautiful, because in reality, it's all the same. And all good is to be found in the will of Maleldil, to use Lewis's name for God in the Space Trilogy. The age-old struggle of humans is my will against God's will. And the fundamental source of this conflict is a disagreement on the nature of goodness. The human belief is that my will, what I want, will be good for me. If I have a desire for something, surely the thing must be good, at least in some sense. It will bring me some pleasure or achieve some goal I have in mind. But the reality is that humans are radically lacking in understanding. The things we imagine will be good turn out to be quite the opposite. They are usually fleeting, often damaging to ourselves and others. And if we're honest, they're often not even enjoyable at all when we get them. On the other hand, divine understanding is perfect. Maleldil knows precisely what will bring his creation the most pleasure and fulfillment. And it turns out that the proper pursuit of this real joy is really the exact same thing as doing what is right. What God calls good is both righteousness and happiness for humans. It's just hard and sometimes impossible for humans to see that reality. So what is the upshot of all this? If we believe that God knows far better than we do what will make our lives good, then the essential thing is that we have to trust him and obey him when he gives us direction. And isn't that quite simply what Christianity is all about? It is the good news that when we trust Christ, or Maleldil in the Space Trilogy, when we take him at his word and walk with him in the way he says to walk, then we find ourselves entering the good life, freed from all the unhappiness that comes from pursuing what we incorrectly think will be good. We're instead led into a better life than we could ever imagine if we'll just let go of our own will and acknowledge that we can't fully understand what is good, but God can, and he's ready and willing to give it to us if we'll just receive it from him. So all that is my feeble attempt at conveying just a small part of the theology Lewis is exploring in Paralandra. And really, none of this is new, right? Um, at its core, it's just fundamental truths of scripture. Lewis is not coming up with new ideas or new doctrines. He's just communicating ancient truths in new words through a, through a creative story. Now, on a different note, 
One other thing I wanted to touch on in this episode is the influence of the Divine Comedy on Lewis's Space Trilogy. I mentioned last time that there are some structural and thematic parallels between the three books of the trilogy and the three parts of Dante's poem, and so I want to try to illuminate a few of those parallels briefly. I think it's a fruitful thing to compare different works of literature, especially when one clearly influenced the other, and we end up, ideally, with a deeper understanding of both works. So the Divine Comedy, as you know, tells of Dante the Pilgrim's imagined journey through the pit of hell, up Mount Purgatory, and into celestial paradise. And in some ways, Dr. Ransom makes a similar journey through the three volumes of the Space Trilogy, starting in the planet Mars, moving to the planet Venus, and in the third book, which we will discuss next time, um, fighting the cosmic war on Earth. Now, with book one, it does not make a lot of sense to compare Ransom's experience on Mars to Dante's experience in hell. Uh, In fact, the inhabitants of Mars are peaceful, hospitable, reverent creatures, nothing like the sinners and devils in Dante's hell. And Ransom's experience there on Mars is largely very positive. That said... A parallel to the Inferno is more evident when we consider Ransom's state of mind or soul and the journey of learning that he needs. The opening lines of Out of the Silent Planet especially make the parallel to the Inferno very clear. So do you remember how the Inferno starts? Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself in a dark wilderness, for I had wandered from the straight and true. Those are Dante's opening lines. Now here is the opening sentence of Out of the Silent Planet. The last drops of the thunder shower had hardly ceased falling when the pedestrian stuffed his map into his pocket, settled his pack more comfortably on his tired shoulders, and stepped out from the shelter of a large chestnut tree into the middle of the road. So first of all, there's those last few words, the middle of the road, which I think is a nod to Dante's midway upon the journey of our life. Also, just as Dante the Pilgrim is wandering, so is Lewis's pedestrian, who turns out to be Dr. Ransom, um, trying to find his way, and he's putting aside his map in the opening sentence, which seems significant. And even just by referring to Ransom as the pedestrian, Lewis is paying homage to Dante the Pilgrim. And also, just as Dante is said to be in a dark wood when the Inferno opens, so Ransom is coming out from under the shadow of a large tree in the dark of evening after a storm. So all the imagery of this first sentence points to the opening of the Divine Comedy, Both heroes are embarking on a journey that ends up being much longer than they imagined it would be, and both men, while they have their strengths, need some level of spiritual education, and that's what they both get in the course of their journeys. So we should be reminded of Dante right from the start of the Space Trilogy. 
And then as we get into books two and three, we begin to see how the structure and themes of the Divine Comedy have also influenced C.S. Lewis. Book two, Paralandra, shares some significant parallels with Purgatorio, part two of Dante's comedy. First, in imagery, Dante the Pilgrim crosses an ocean in order to reach the foot of Mount Purgatory, which he must then arduously ascend, and at the top he has to walk through fire to reach paradise. In a very similar way, on the planet Paralandra, Ransom finds himself initially in an ocean and on floating islands. But there is one fixed island on the planet with a large mountain, and eventually in the story, Ransom crosses the ocean to reach this island, and he then must climb the mountain, and you guessed it, he encounters fire on the way before he makes it to the top. So Lewis obviously imitates the geography of Purgatorio in Paralandra. But thematically, too, like Dante must experience purgation and be tested and tried in part two of the Divine Comedy, so Ransom suffers a great deal and is challenged and stretched to his limits and beyond it in book two of the Space Trilogy. And he comes out of the experience a far stronger, wiser, holier man. Then in book three, That Hideous Strength, which of course we'll discuss much more next time, more themes will come to the surface that harken back to Dante. One of the biggest ones is Lewis's focus on love and obedience, both in human relationships and also in our relationship with God. The whole space trilogy culminates in the final chapter of book three in a celebration of love, which is impossible in Lewis's view without obedience or the surrender of each individual's self-will. And this is straight out of Dante. Well, and originally straight out of the Bible. If you love me, keep my commandments. And then in Dante, the final lines of the Divine Comedy go like this, if you remember. Already were all my will and my desires turned as a wheel in equal balance by the love that moves the sun and other stars. The yielding of a will to God's love. This is the only way to find a good and beautiful life, as I was discussing earlier. And this state of soul is what both Dante and Lewis picture in the final lines of their trilogies. Hand in hand with this too, one last note, Lewis heavily borrows thematic imagery from the medieval cosmology that fills the Divine Comedy as well. Imagery of the different planets in our galaxy as a representative of different virtues or, or qualities more generally, or even attributes of God. So in Dante, for instance, the sphere of Jupiter is associated with kingship and hospitality, and so by extension, Jupiter, or Jove, is an image of God in his role as king. Whereas Mars, for millennia, has been associated with war, and so Mars emphasizes God as conqueror, or Venus is tied to love and pleasure, and so Venus represents that side, on and on. Um, and I am not remotely qualified to speak at any length about this, but there is lots more to be said. 
And much of it has been said by scholars who study this kind of thing, like Michael Ward, for instance, who wrote Planet Narnia. Uh, medieval cosmology is a whole thing, and Lewis was very knowledgeable and interested in the way that Christians in the Middle Ages especially incorporated uh, cosmological imagery into their writings. And Lewis did it himself, not only here in the Space Trilogy, but also in the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, so yes, this kind of imagery adds a layer of depth to his trilogy, in that it gives us these many different faces of the divine, you could say, imagery that is rooted centuries back in Christian history. And more specifically, it creates lots of connections with Dante's Divine Comedy, which has influenced so many generations of later readers. And the more you study all the parallel imagery between those two works, the more little meaningful revelations you will discover from the comparison. So, those are some quick thoughts about Paralandra and about the influence of Dante on the Space Trilogy as a whole. I cannot begin to do justice to the remarkable depth of Lewis's writing in Paralandra, so at this point I am just going to resort to urging you to take my word for it and read the Space Trilogy for yourself. If Out of the Silent Planet seems a little slow to you, um, a little hard to get into, please trust me and persevere. The trilogy only gets better as it goes on, and Paralandra is truly a must-read if you are at all interested in C.S. Lewis's work. The theology of Paralandra is profound, and at the same time, it's a gripping story as well. Um, I will warn you, the first few chapters of Paralandra are a little on the slow side, but once the story really gets going, it is captivating. And next time, in our last episode of the season, we get to explore the third book of the Space Trilogy, That Hideous Strength, which I think is even more compelling than Paralandra, if that's possible. That Hideous Strength has a different tone and a different storytelling style than books one and two. And in theory, That Hideous Strength is distinct enough that it can even be read on its own without having read the first two books. Um, but I do think you get a richer experience if you read the whole trilogy in order. At any rate, we will save that discussion for next time, and I certainly hope you come back for that episode. Thank you so much for joining me today, and thank you for your patience with me as well. If you've noticed, this episode was delayed, and I apologize for that. My schedule has been inundated with some unforeseen demands lately, and it's just been increasingly difficult for me to get these episodes recorded and edited and uploaded in a timely way, and I'm very sorry about that. Um, sadly, I am going to have to significantly cut back on my podcast output next year, um, but I will talk more about that next time in our last episode of the season. At any rate, thank you for being patient with me and for listening to these reviews even when I'm late in getting them posted. I appreciate your loyalty. As always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson, and if you're ever interested, you can learn more about me and the plays I write at my website, kittywinproductions.com. I'll see you next time. <laughs>